If you wouldn't mind, open with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We will start in verse um, 21. And what I want to do today is just give a brief meditation on the subject of weakened saints and the silence of God. And to look at the role of weakness, just to kind of see illustrated the role of weakness in the Christian life. And secondly, understanding a little more of God's silence, especially during these times. And this is especially applicable when trials get drawn out to the point to where, uh, you know, after a while, it's, uh, you know, usually it's your closest family and friends that remember. And then they may get drawn out so long that no one remembers and a lot of those times, you can feel yourself getting progressively weaker, and you often start finding yourself asking the question of why is God silent? Why, is it, why isn't there any indication from the Lord what's going on here? And so what I want to do, Lord willing, is I want to read this very, we know this story, but you can't read it like we know it. You have to read it, you have to hear it for the first time, and hear it with a freshness, because it's a very shocking story. The story of the Syrophoenician woman. And what, what I want to do then is I want to read a little short story from a little book I have that I think really illustrates what is going on in this story of the Syrophoenician woman. So let's start in verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. Isn't that amazing? Everything that you know about Jesus. You can't read that without it, without it hitting you some way. You've read about Christ... You know, many of you have read about Christ your whole life. He's stilling the sea. He's providing bread for all these people. There's all these miracles happening. There's these blind people that are coming to him. And here this Phoenician woman comes. Her little girl has a demon. And she starts saying, Lord, please heal my daughter. And he doesn't say a thing. He doesn't even acknowledge her presence. God is silent. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. <laughs> Sometimes you have to put up with the disciples. Still. <laughs> but he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How about that? He's completely silent the disciples start complaining about it, so he turns to her and says, I wasn't sent for you. What I have to offer is not for you. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But you have to bear with him, because he's a wise, wise physician. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. See, she's getting weaker. She's getting weaker. And weakness doesn't necessarily mean that you start losing physical strength, but it's a good illustration here. Weakness has to do with desperation and losing other options. 
He answered her and says, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I mean, this is getting, this is borderline insulting. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Here's a woman that's lost all of her options. She doesn't have anywhere else to go, so the very fact that he just put her in an illustration with a dog really doesn't matter to her because she has nothing else left. There's no plan B, and this is the very picture of weakness. A person who has nothing else, and they're just crying out to the Lord Jesus Christ, even though everything in that situation seems to move in the opposite direction that he's ever going to give her any help. Then Jesus said to her, Oh, woman, <laughs> you can feel the passion here. It's not, it's not stoic. It's not, it's not like he's just reading off a manuscript. You can see the love that has always been there come gushing forth in this expression. Oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done to you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. This is a picture, a story, a true story of desperation that is born from weakness. She has nowhere else to turn, and having strength nowhere else, she begins to call out to him from that weakness, and he hears her. And so I want to read you a short story that I think illustrates these principles so well. I was talking with a brother the other day. And I was actually going to go a little different direction this morning, but this story so encouraged my heart again um, that I wanted to read it to you. And this is from a little book by uh, John and Mary Jones. A lot of you have probably seen this. There's three little volumes. Um, this is the first one. And these, uh, John and Mary Jones, are actually shepherds in Wales. Uh, like, literally, they are shepherds. They deal with sheep all day long. They have cool sheep dogs. And there's all kinds of stories about sheep. And man, as you read this, you're like, this is exactly why the Lord called us sheep. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's not like, you know, it fit in a couple of instances. But right down the line, we are sheep and he is a shepherd. So let me just read you a little of this. That delicious green grass down there would look really, looks really like it would be worth getting. One can just imagine a sheep on a rocky mountain saying this to herself. A push and a jump and she can reach it. But to return is by no means so simple. It is far easier to come down the rock than to jump back. She has stranded herself on a rocky ledge where there is no room to go backwards or forwards. The rock face behind and the precipice in front. Here she must stay in spite of all of her efforts to save herself. Will anyone see her? She could be there for days before her owner passes by and is able to rescue her. So you can kind of see what's happened here. And these are true stories. That's what I love about this. So this sheep sees some grass down there. He's like, oh, that looks good. Or she, doesn't matter. Sees grass down there. That looks good. And so, like, you know, navigates down this very dangerous rocky cliff to get down to the grass, to get down to the grass. And about the time that her stomach gets full, she starts looking around and realizes she forgot to plan a very important part of this journey the journey back. She's gotten on this cliff and there's absolutely no way to get off. It's too steep to go back up and she's on this little bitty ledge 
And the only option would be to go off the ledge. Well, down the ledge is a very deep chasm, and she's not going to make it. And so she is completely stuck with no, no options for help whatsoever. Now get this. When the shepherd first sees her, he makes no effort to reach her. Does that start to sound a little familiar with our story? He does no more than cast a keen glance in her direction. Here's this sheep up here, obviously in trouble, and the shepherd walks by, sees her, glances up there, and he keeps on walking. The following day, he may well pass that way again and still do nothing about rescuing her. Day by day, here this little sheep is stuck up on this cliff, and that shepherd glances up there and sees her, and all he does is nothing. He keeps walking. And the next day when he comes by, he just walks right by and never even acknowledges that she's there. And the next day that comes by, he walks right by again and never even acknowledges that she is there or that her life is in danger. And so the, little, the poor little sheep is left there to starve. A few days later, that farmer will return again, and by this time the sheep has grown so weak and desperate that she is bleeding as though her heart would break, calling out persistently for help. Now, some of you don't know about sheep, what bleeding is. Bleeding is sheep speak for, I really need help. And that's what's happening here. She says she's, she's bleeding out as though her heart would break. And if you've ever heard an animal cry out, I don't know if you've ever been around animals, but an animal that's really in trouble, like you can tell when an animal's in trouble. And so she's bleeding as though her heart would break, calling out persistently for help. The shepherd has been waiting until now to hear that bleat. See, he's not, he's not indifferent. It's not like he didn't notice. He's been waiting. He's been waiting. He knows that now is the opportunity to reach her. Had he gone to her, her aid before she began to bleat, she would have still had strength to do something for herself. And in her fear at seeing him approach, she would have leapt to her death in the chasm below. But now her pathetic bleeding assures the shepherd that she is at his mercy. What a picture. And so from this picture of the, from the story of the Syrophoenician woman and this picture of shepherding, one thing that I want to draw out is this. The silence of the shepherd does not mean indifference. The fact that this shepherd in this story right here is walking by day after day does not mean that there are other chores on the farm that are so pressing that he doesn't have time to deal with the sheep that's in trouble. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care or that he doesn't notice. And that's the same picture we get here in the, with the Syrophoenician woman. The fact that he is not answering does not mean that he does not know the needs of this woman. And the same is true in our life. It is precisely because he knows what's happening, because he knows her, and because his affection is great, that the farmer still passes by and that Christ doesn't answer the Syrophoenician woman. And often in our life, it's precisely because he knows what's happening. It's precisely because he knows us and it's precisely because his great affection that his silence continues. 
This is why it is so important to know the character of God because often we are put into situations to where it seems God is acting in a way that contradicts everything that we know about him. God is silent. He's not answering. He's not doing the things that you thought he would do. It seems as though that your pain in a trial, something that you're facing, is going on and on and on, and it feels like, it feels like that God is indifferent. But this is why it is important not to operate off of feeling, but to know the Bible. You talk about practical Because when you know the character of God, you can stare into the face of apparent indifference and say, whatever may be true in this situation, I know this. God is not indifferent toward me. You fight with the gospel. The cross forever removes the possibility that God will ever be indifferent towards you. The cross has forever removed that possibility. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He loved me and gave himself for me. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The greatest sacrifice has ever been made. God sent his son to die under his own wrath because he loves you. When you are in a trial and there is silence, you can know it is not because of this. It is not because he's indifferent. There's a purpose. And that's the second principle that I want to draw out from this. The waiting time, the time in between, has a purpose. And to me, I think that's often the hardest part. Once you get over the initial shock of a trial, the initial pain of something that you're going through, the hardest part is the sheer monotony. It's how long the trial lasts. It's all those moments in between when you're updating people, you give an update and they're sitting side by side in a paragraph in an email, but you lived moment by moment through that thing. And it's those moments going by that are often, that is the hardest part of the trial. Just how long it's taking. How long it's taking. But this has a purpose. Think of Moses. God comes to Moses, tells him he's going to set the people of Israel free. And 30, then 30, 35 years later, he's still on the backside of a desert in the middle of nowhere. And the people of Israel are no closer to being free, and at least in his eyes, than they've ever been. Think of that passage of time. I mean, we just read over that. Think of God saying, I'm going to use you to do this great thing. And then you're sitting there for 10, 20. Imagine it, 30 years. 30 years since God has spoken this thing and you are still out in the middle of nowhere and God is giving you nothing on timing. But God didn't waste a single one of those moments, did he? You think Moses was different when he came out of that desert than when he entered in? You think, you think those moments had been calculated, every single one of them, to change him? They absolutely had, because when he first started this thing, what did he do? He saw an Egyptian. I mean, you know, this is logic. God's going to set me free from the Egyptians. There's an Egyptian. I'm going to kill him and hide him in the sand. I mean, this works, right? Well, Moses goes charging after him, does this thing, and that's part of the way he finds himself on the backside of the desert. 
But that was Moses's. that's his personality. That's where he's at at that point in his life. He's charging ahead and doing things in his own power. Here's what we should do. Let's go do it. Well, by the time all of those moments passed that God has calculated for use in his own life, we hear in Exodus 33:15, when he's leading the people of Israel, what does he say? He says, if your presence does not go up with us, do not lead us up from here. That's a very different Moses. Because before that, he's just running out. He doesn't really need a word. It's like, I've kind of already got a general idea of what you're going to do. Now I'm going to go do it. But at this point, those 40 years had made him very weak. They had made him very dependent. And he says, Lord, if you're not going with us, please don't lead us up from here. He knows I'm not going to make it. I can't make it a single step without God. The passage of those moments is such a trial. It's like a trial within a trial, but you can believe this, beloved. God will never, ever waste a single moment in your life. It is all being used to conform you to the image of Christ. It is all being used for your good, and it is all being used for God's glory. Even the ones that seem the most monotonous and to have no purpose, and when it feels like almost everybody in the world has forgotten this trial because it's gone on that long, God is not wasting those moments. They have a purpose. And often that purpose is to work greater and greater weakness in us, greater and greater dependence. And this leads to a final thing. Finally, our strength is an enemy, is an enemy. I'm not talking about trying to, this doesn't relate to whether or not that you should, um, you should work on your skill at work. You should stay studied up, that you should be as sharp as you possibly can and as best as you possibly can. It doesn't relate to that. This relates to what you do when you encounter limitations in your own life. And it doesn't matter how skilled you get. You will encounter limitations. You're going to hit them all the time. And as you start to understand who God is more and more, and you start to understand the Scriptures, you're going to start seeing limitations you didn't even know that were there. And you will start to see that at the end of the day, when it really comes down to it, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing. But it's when we get away from that, when we think that we're strong, and we think that we we have this, I've got this situation. It's often manifested by a lack of prayer, a lack of really digging in the Word, a lack of just being cast upon the Lord, that is an enemy to us. It's not just like that God is saying, hey, I think you've got a bad idea. It's dangerous. That sheep, that sheep, that, the strength that that sheep's had, if that shepherd would have allowed a situation where that sheep could have shown its strength, his strength would have brought it death. Death. Paul prays, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, about his thorn in his flesh, he says, concerning this, this thorn, this weakness, I implore the Lord three times that it might leave me. He's saying, God, give me my strength back. I want to serve you. Isn't that the way we feel a lot of times? God, I need my strength so I can do something for you. But what happens? And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected. In weakness. In weakness. 
Well, let me read the rest of the story here. We've gotten to the point to where he's been passing by. He looks completely indifferent. But then he begins to hear the bleat that he's been listening for that lets him know that she's finally weak enough that she can help him. And it says this. He says he has purposely brought with him two lengths of rope. One end of each he ties to a slab of rock above the spot. Then grasping hold of the first like a rock climber, he lets himself down the rope from one foothold to the next until he reaches the sheep. There she lies, a helpless bundle. She can't do anything for herself. He ties a second rope around her securely. Then after hauling himself back to the top, he carefully pulls the sheep up after him. Great is his rejoicing at getting her safely back again. And great will be his care over her as he nurses her. Aren't you glad you have a shepherd like this? There are so many areas and so many religions and philosophies in the world where you get ahead by being stronger. You get ahead by more of your own self-confidence. But in Christianity, it's right the opposite. Christ helps weak saints. And as one brother said, he said there's two two levels of weakness. The first level is the acceptable level of weakness that kind of is the prideful level of weakness. Where you're weak and you admit you're weak And it's kind of like, you know, one of these scenes in a movie where all the explosions go off and then this one guy emerges, his shirt's kind of torn, he's all sweating, he's saved the day and he's kind of limping and he's kind of got that look in his eyes like, I'm not awesome, but have you noticed I'm awesome? (laughs) Kind of that level of weakness where it's like, I know, man, I'm just so weak, I just need the Lord. But then there's the other level of weakness that's not funny anymore. It's the level of weakness where you actually are weak. And you have that feeling like, I have lost control. I am completely needy. And you start to see, Lord, I really can't do anything apart from you. And you start to cry out to the Lord for help. And it's at that moment that the Lord's been waiting for. To hear the cry of help from a weak saint to come in and be strong. So these are just some thoughts on weakness in saints and how to understand, often understand what's happening in the silence of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being such a good shepherd to us. Lord, and we do all, we want to confess our weakness. Lord, and we know this morning that it's at various levels that we're able to confess that weakness. We know that really wherever we're at, that we really actually are weak, Lord. We really are weak. And so we ask for your help. We want to be like Jesus. We want to serve other people. Lord, we want to be good brothers and sisters in Christ. We want so much just to be like Jesus. And so we ask you, would you come this morning and would you help us and make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ's name, amen.